Hello and welcome to the Bicom podcast. I'm Richard Pater, the director of Bicom. Today is Wednesday the 28th of June and I'm delighted to be joined by Ksenia Svetlova. Ksenia is a former member of Knesset and before that a journalist with expertise in Russian, Arabic as well as Hebrew and English. Today she is the chief executive of ROPES, the regional organization for peace and economic security. She's also a senior non-resident fellow at the Atlantic Council and a fellow at the Institute of Policy and Research at the Reichman Institute. Ksenia, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you for having me, Richard. I was just going to add, actually, that I was in, in, in pre preparing for this podcast. I was listening to an episode that we recorded uh, at the beginning of last year, right after the start of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And I would say that analytically, it still stands up. And I would encourage any of our listeners that want to hear more about Ksenia's background and analysis on Russia to listen to in the archives, episode 175. But as for today, and I was originally, when we were discussing it, I was going to start and focus on uh, on some of the regional issues here, which we'll definitely get to. But I thought because of the uh, dramatic events that we saw this past weekend in Russia, uh, we should start there. So perhaps drawing on your familiar with, uh, with, with Russia, what was your ass assessment of the coup that wasn't? Uh, so uh, first of all, you know, I do believe that it was a coup. Um, I thought uh, that it was not a very planned coup and perhaps with no end game kind of uh, vision uh, ahead of it. But it was very real. I did, I did not think that it was a conspiracy. Uh, it was a conspiracy, I mean, between Putin and uh, Prigozhin. Uh, and it was uh, uh, astonishing to see uh, how weak the Russian state really is from the inside, you know, because mm. the tanks and uh, the military vehicles was speeding, uh, you know, from the Ukrainian border through Rostov, taking over Rostov, one million people, yeah, uh, getting to Voronezh, getting to Lipetsk, and only, you know, like uh, stopping there, uh, probably, you know, uh, in order to get some kind of a deal. But uh, even now, when uh, the heads of the Russian security bodies explain that, you know, uh, there would be a great fight. Uh, in uh, Moscow, and of course, you know, the rebels would be crushed. And does it mean that it's okay for them to take over uh, some uh, smaller cities? <laughs> Rostov and Voronezh can be sacrificed. I mean, uh, you know, I thought that if Prigozhin would be perhaps smarter, uh, he would just take control over Rostov uh, and keep it to himself and proclaim there some kind of, I don't know, independent republic or something like this. How could Putin deal, obviously deal with that? You know, like uh, what, taking... Uh, uh, army uh, away from uh, Ukraine uh, in order to quell this rebellion uh, in his territory. Uh, everything about it was like unbelievable. Uh, and the unbelievable weakness uh, of the regime, actually, and security arrangements within the country. I think that uh, everybody's taking notes in Ukraine and in the West, perhaps in Russia itself. So I was going to ask you, I mean, what, how have the events been interpreted, interpreted inside Russia? And does Prigozhin have any uh, support amongst the, the Russian public? You know, uh, the Russian public was uh, taught and educated to be passive and apathetic. Um, it was encouraged to do so by Putin for a long time. Uh, stay away from politics and you will be better off. You actually can enjoy life in Russia if you are not, uh, you know, trying to uh, get in the midst of these uh, political debates and disputes and whatever. So when uh, uh, 
the news had spread over the Telegram and other social networks uh, in Saturday morning that uh, Prigozhin is about to take Moscow and so on. You know, I just noticed that uh, the most common sentiment was apathy. People didn't really care. I mean, they do not really support Prigozhin. Maybe some of them do, you know, maybe the families of the ex-cons that were freed by him and sent to the battleground. I don't know. But uh, it seemed to me that people really don't care. You know, Putin, okay. Prigozhin, ah, you know, both of them. Yeah, I saw, the, I saw a meme. It was fascinating to see it. So both of them are bold, uh, not very high, not very tall. Uh, both of them are billionaires. Uh, both of them are talking about this patriotism and so on. Both of them are lying. You know, so what's the difference? And was it ever a factor that uh, Prigozhin has a, a Jewish father? Does that ever come up in the discourse? Not that I uh, could uh, notice. You know, uh, I think that, uh, and again, this is so common uh, in Russia. Zhirinovsky, for example, yes, the clown, political clown from the 90s, uh, who died shortly before the invasion to, uh, to Ukraine, uh, the head of the LDPR party uh, was, of course, also Jewish by, uh, I think, even by mother. Uh, and uh, nobody cared about it, you know, actually. Uh, nobody, you know, like took interest in this uh, because this is this isn't quite common. And it was really not about that. This is not uh, something that is a distinct feature. You know, he never spoke about his Judaism. And uh, it's, uh, it's, not, it's not an issue. But him being, uh, you know, ex-con, uh, and a criminal and a member of the organized crime and an oligarch and the, the head of the private army. Uh, this all, all of that was debated, of course. Sure. Um, on a related issue, we saw just earlier this week two prominent U.S. senators, one from the Democratic Party, one from the, from the Republican side, calling on Israel to allow the U.S. to send Iron Dome batteries to the Ukraine. And of course, as this is Israeli technology, they need Israeli approval in order to do so. I wonder if you thought if that was reasonable and realistic. Well, you know, uh, this um, demand for the Iron Dome on behalf of the Ukraine, we hear it from the early days of the war. Uh, but again, I'm not a military expert, but from uh, I know from the friends of mine, also in Ukraine, by the way, who are military experts, uh, they believe that the Iron Domes perhaps are not the most suitable technology for the Ukrainian mm. conditions, because it was indeed, it's an Israeli technology that was developed for, uh, you know, the situation that Israel is experiencing uh, with the Hamas uh, rocket fire uh, on its southern border. Uh, but there is a huge difference uh, in the length of the border, depth of the country, uh, and uh, the types of rockets. Uh, and uh, I do believe that Israel has many other defense systems that it can contribute to Ukraine or sell to, to Ukraine. Uh, uh, and uh, there would be perhaps more of help. Uh, I don't think that it might be necessarily the Iron Domes. Yeah, fair enough. I mean, I think what was, what was interesting for me is, although you said it's been around from the, from the beginning, there was an, an understanding that Israel would, uh, would be supplying it. Um, which Israel just doesn't have the, uh, as far as I understand, the, the spare capacity. All of the Iron Domes here are being deployed against the various threats. Um, but it's interesting that if the UA have the capacity to uh, to uh, uh, produce these at, at, a, at a quantity which, uh, which which serves them, then it's interesting that it's come up. Um, but we will see that uh, 
see how that develops. And another related issue, I suppose, in, in kind of the triangulization of Israel and Russia is, of course, the what's now been going on for, I think, over eight years, the deconfliction mechanism over the skies of Syria, allowing Israel to act against uh, uh, Iranian smuggling and, um, and military targets. How is that uh, operating at the moment in, in your assessment between Israel and Russia? Well, but from what we can tell, you know, also, you know, from the open sources mo mainly, mm. um, uh, the deconfliction center uh, continues to work uh, perfectly. Uh, and um, uh, I was actually uh, very disturbed by this understanding that, you know, since Russia is getting closer to Iran and Israel is pounding the Iranian targets in Syria uh, quite often, then uh, you know this new situation might play out somehow not in Israel's favor in Syria. Mm. Uh, that Russia will perhaps try to limit Israel more. Uh, if we are looking at the statistics of the attacks on Iranian targets in Syria during the last few months since Russia started to acquire the Shahed uh, suicide drones drones for its battlefield in the Ukraine, uh, the situation in Syria did not change. Uh, of course, you know, everything is very uh, unstable and, uh, you know, uh, you know, it, we can be confronted tomorrow by some new reality. Uh, and uh, as we are, you know, uh, confronted with the reality of Russia supplying Iran with more advanced weapon uh, than ever before. But at least for now, for now, uh, Israel uh, continues to make its uh, sorties in the Syrian skies. Uh, and uh, apparently, uh, you know, the mechanism that was created back then in 2015 uh, is still is still solid. It's still working. Okay, that's reassuring to a to a degree. Uh, if we can turn our attention to kind of the uh, I suppose the, the biggest issue in terms of uh, potential regional developments, that of the uh, the prospect of uh, Saudi and Israel normalization. How seriously do you take these uh, the latest reports relating to this? Well, there are plenty of spins there, uh, you know, mm. Richard, you know, is, uh, there are all, a lot of interested parties uh, that would want the, for specific uh, parts of the Israeli public to be excited about something that might happen, it might happen really soon. Uh, and uh, uh, I think that uh, it's quite clear that the Prime Minister needs some diplomatic wins. He is not being invited to uh, uh, the US, uh, to Washington. Uh, which is something that always happens with every Israeli prime minister within the first few weeks uh, of him being in power. Uh, he is uh, also, he's being ostracized also by big part of uh, Europe. Uh, and uh, he understands that also he is not going to, you know, get close anytime soon to Abu Dhabi uh, or Manama uh, and so on, you know. So uh, he definitely needs this win and indeed, uh, it is a big catch if it uh, indeed will be happening. Uh, for now, I have to tell you that it seems to me that the ball is actually in American uh, field, in American uh, uh, hands, uh, because uh, things that the, the, the Saudis want, uh, at least large part of them, depends on the US. Uh, and of course, Israel has to say a lot about you know, these demands. Uh, it seems to comply with them for now. Uh, at least with everything that has to do with the nuclear facilities uh, for Saudi Arabia, the first nuclear plant, uh, I hear, and it's uh, really astonishing actually, uh, Israel that fought so hard to prevent nuclearization of uh, Iran uh, and so on uh, is now uh, very cool actually uh, with the idea that Saudi Arabia will become nuclear. 
uh, and uh, uh, the Americans are certainly, uh, you know, uh, are not, uh, you know, holier than the Pope in this regard. If Israel doesn't care, so they also don't care. Okay, so I think that uh, potentially, you know, uh, uh, this uh, demand can be uh, probably fulfilled. Uh, there are also requirements in regards to um, better terms of uh, military alliance uh, between the two countries. And again, you know, I don't know exactly what, you know, what's inside the little clauses and if, if it's something that the U.S. can uh, give it to them, but at least uh, it can be discussed. There is however one thing uh, that uh, the Saudis mentioned, and it's entirely depends on Israel. And this is, of course, the Israeli-Palestinian track. Um, and uh, this is, I think, um, uh, the barrier uh, today, one of the barriers, it's not the only one, but it's one of the important ones. Uh, it's uh, hard to imagine that while Israel approves every day thousands of settlement units and um, uh, it's, uh, you know, uh, uh, does not prevent uh, the terrorist acts against the Palestinians uh, in the villages that are being set on fire by the settlers and so on, uh, that uh, this is a fertile ground for peacemaking with Saudi Arabia. Uh, Saudi Arabia was always more cautious than other Arab countries, uh, being a leader, one of the leaders of the Arab world, and perhaps aspiring to be the leader uh, of the Arab world, uh, the guardian of the holy mosques and so on, the defender of the Islam. Uh, I uh, simply, uh, you know, making it hard for me to believe that uh, if nothing will change in the Israeli attitude, until the end of the year, this is the you know timeline that we have till the end of the year uh, with this current government that will allow uh, the Saudis uh, some uh, freedom you know to say well listen you know there are some positive steps you know perhaps uh, we can leverage it even more if we will sign peace with Israel and so on. Uh, so I think this complexity is still uh, uh, you know is very much of a, a barrier uh, if you are talking about the achieving of this. A huge goal of uh, normalization with Saudi. Mm, thank you for that. And a couple of things I'd like to to follow up on that. First of all, um, that's quite quite fascinating. You think that the Israel basically, when it comes to the Saudi nu civilian nuclear project, um, Israel would acquiesce and and accept that because, as you as you noted, kind of that's been a long standing red line of Israel, of, of Israel not mm -hmm. to not to accept that introduction. How do you uh, how do you, how do you, how do you explain that? And again. The, the background to the fear of Israelis is perhaps not a, not a fear about uh, Mohammed bin Salman himself, but uh, when you're making a, a peace treaty with a country like Saudi Arabia, you don't, you don't know in a, in a decade or two or even sooner if there is regime change there and that uh, these, this uh, civilian power could fall into, into other people's hands. How do you explain that, uh, that coolness, as you describe? Well, yes, uh, you know, so there are a lot, there's actually a lot of debate uh, in between, uh, you know, in the Israel expert society in regards mm. to what does it actually mean? Uh, is it this uh, will to make these concessions for the sake of immediate gains, uh, you know, having this uh, uh, normalization agreement and the photo in the White House and so on that Netanyahu so badly needs? Uh, or is it more the realization that even if the Americans will not give it to them, then somebody will, perhaps the Chinese uh, and uh, the Saudis uh, uh, have set their mind uh, on the, uh, you know, uh, uh, civilian nuclear program. And whether the U.S. likes it or not, uh, it's going to uh, pursue this goal. Uh, and then Israel will have even less guarantees, you know, because the U.S. will not be involved in this. Uh, mm. So, uh, you know, it can be uh, 
the combination of the both. Uh, but for now, I can tell you that there are so many voices, and one of them is it was even the voice of the ex Minister of Defense, Benny Gantz, uh, who was uh, uh, asked, uh, you know, about this, and um, you know, you know, uh, we didn't hear the very like uh, specific uh, like no uh, in in this regards. So, so there are also there were also many other current officials of the government who basically said, well, you know, this is something that we can do, we can live with it. Uh, and uh, this is a huge departure from the Israeli uh, consistent and the traditional position, of course, in this regard. Yeah, absolutely. And just back onto what you mentioned before about the, the, the kind of the Palestinian um, dynamic within Israel-Saudi talks. I mean, we were having a uh, an editorial debate uh, in, in the team of how much uh, this is a serious uh, kind of traditional position of the Saudis, or if it's just a uh, lip service. And obviously, as you've mentioned, kind of compounded by both recent events, which is uh, the heightened tension in the, in, the, in the West Bank, but also the makeup of this current uh, Israeli government. Is the minimum that Israel can offer, does that reach the threshold for the Saudis? What kind of, what kind of concessions or, or gestures, declarations do you think Israel can make and that will, will be enough to, uh, to satisfy the Saudis? So uh, I think that the Saudis will not be satisfied with anything less than they, what the Emirati uh, got. Uh, and the Emiratis in 2020, uh, of course, uh, you know, when uh, they pledged Israel, uh, don't uh, annex uh, the Jordan Valley, let's make peace instead. So mm -hmm. this was great by the Emirati side uh, as a big win. So listen, you know, so we uh, decided to normalize our relations with Israel. And uh, uh, the gain is that Israel will not annex uh, the sea territories, the Jordan Valley territories. Okay, so uh, I think that the Saudis will need uh, much more. Uh, it will not be only should be a promise. Listen, we swear, uh, we promise you that, uh, you know, we will not annex uh, the, the West Bank uh, territory uh, sometime soon. It has to be something more concrete. And uh, frankly, it's hard for me to envisage that with the current makeup of the government, uh, any concessions uh, to, for example, relaunch the uh, peace talks uh, or to switch some of the uh, B territories to C category of territories, uh, uh, sorry, C to B, uh, for the benefit of the Palestinians that they will be able to develop some of the chunk of the of the lands uh, and the C territories uh, comprise some 60% of the West Bank. Right. Uh, so this is of course huge. Uh, I do not see, you know, with Itamar Ben-Gvir and other uh, radical uh, extreme right ministers, I simply do not see the probability of that. Uh, you know, so the maximum they can say is that, listen, you know, we are not uh, opting for annexation at this very moment, uh, which is true. We, we know that he he cannot do it, you know, currently. Uh, but um, anything more than that uh, is uh, simply unimaginable. And it, perhaps it could be, uh, the reason for dissolving the government, you know, if uh, it will be really on the table. Yes, yeah, that could be that could be very interesting uh, development if they if they get that far. Um, another aspect of the of the potential um, framework of this, and this came up also in the Negev forum last year, um, is the idea of creating a regional security architecture, effectively kind of uh, 
uh, placing Israeli technology elsewhere in the Gulf to defend against uh, Iranian missiles. I'm just wondering, following the, uh, the Saudi-Iranian rapprochement, if this is still a relevant issue for the Saudis. So, you know, I think that um, with all of the rapprochement, and it's not happening for the first time in the history of uh, Saudi Arabia uh, and Iran. Uh, the previous wave of uh, uh, rapprochement happened uh, some 25 years ago uh, when they also agreed on this uh, 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 defense cooperation and so on. Uh, so, you know, there are there were some precedents to that. But uh, eventually, uh, these countries... Uh, they, of course, have, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, in common and they can trade with each other and so on. The political goals, however, are very, very different. Uh, and uh, I think that the, this uh, fundamental, uh, the base, you know, of these differences, it, it didn't change. Uh, it, uh, it didn't disappear just because some agreements were signed and uh, the uh, uh, embassies were reopened. So um, uh, I think both the Emiratis and the Saudis they are still very wary of the Iranians. Uh, they know that the threat is very uh, imminent. Uh, they remember very well the uh, uh, shelling of uh, uh, oil fields uh, mm -hmm. in Saudi Arabia. They remember also the blasts in the Fujairah port and so on, and also in uh, Dubai. Uh, and they remember the threats that the Iranians made just recently about shelling their glass towers, right? So they would need the technologies, they would need the cooperation. And I think that even, uh, you know, the Prime Minister of Israel will not visit uh, these countries for the time being. Uh, the security cooperation is ongoing. It's flourishing, actually, unlike the people to people, for example, uh, aspect. Um, and uh, this is to the benefit of the both sides. Uh, so this is not about to stop, uh, you know, because uh, it's not a love affair. Uh, what happened is uh, that uh, I believe that Saudis and the Emiratis, they understood uh, that for now there is no military uh, victory uh, against uh, Iran on the table. That not mm. uh, uh, the United States is about to uh, get into some military adventure, and perhaps also not Israel. Uh, so this uh, kind of uh, uh, ideology that uh, was uh, prevailing in 2017-18 when Trump was uh, also the president, uh, that uh, the military option was still on the table. And again, it was not on the table even then. But now it's clearly not on the table. The American administration is about to sign some deal on the nuclear uh, uh, the nuclear file. Uh, and uh, Iran is about to reopen uh, for business, for Europe also and so on. Uh, so they don't want to miss their chance uh, to reconcile uh, first. Uh, but it doesn't mean that the disagreements disappeared and the hatred disappeared. Thank you for that. I just I mean one one thing just to, to follow up on. If you can give our audience kind of a maybe a little bit of a flavour of what you mentioned, kind of the the covert cooperation on security issues between Israel and and Saudi Arabia. Can you just give us an idea of what that uh, you said it's flourishing? What that looks like at the moment? What that involves? So, just you know, like uh, to hint at the size uh, of this uh, cooperation. So according mm. to the data of the Ministry uh, uh, of Defense of Israel. A quarter of all Israeli weapons is being sold to Arab countries. One fourth, you know, so this is mm. uh, incredible. Uh, we are talking about, uh, 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 of course, uh, 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 missiles, uh, defense, uh, uh, defense systems, uh, other types of weapons that is going there. Uh, and there are specific uh, demands by the Gulf clients 
that are being fulfilled here in Israel. Uh, there is, of course, uh, the cyber uh, security aspect, uh, which is very important. And there were, uh, you know, rumors that the Pegasus or the likes of Pegasus are being sold uh, to uh, Saudi Arabia and also the United Arab Emirates. Uh, but this is a multi-billion uh, business that is ongoing. Uh, again, you know, extremely beneficial to both sides. Uh, and, uh, you know, from what I hear at least, uh, there is no shutdown there. There is no cooling off uh, in these regards. Uh, thank you. If I can just turn to another kind of a, a couple of issues relating to Israel's bilateral relations in the region and, and drawing on your expertise um, of following some of these issues in Arabic as well. Uh, we can start with Israel-Jordanian relations. We saw just a, a month ago a very worrying and unusual incident of a Jordanian member of parliament being arrested trying to smuggle weapons into the West Bank um, after the, there was then uh, short negotiations and he was uh, repatriated back to back to Jordan. Um, how did that incident affect relations and what would you say is the current climate um, of, uh, of Israeli-Jordanian ties? Well, you know, the climate is not great, obviously. Uh, there is a lot of uh, mutual uh, uh, suspicion uh, and uh, we noticed that uh, no Israeli uh, politician or other figure uh, uh, except perhaps of uh, you know the wife of the president uh, Mikhail Herzog uh, was present uh, at the wedding, the royal wedding uh, that took place uh, in uh, in uh, Amman uh, recently. Uh, so I mean, this is something that uh, you know, like something as major as this is taking place. Uh, hardly any Israelis are invited. Uh, this is an indication, you know, that uh, the relations are not in a great shape. But at the same time, I can tell you that, you know, uh, you know this uh, incident with the Jordanian MP is, of course, uh, you know, troubling. But, but we also know uh, that uh, the, in general, the Jordanian parliament is extremely anti-Israeli. They vote time and again uh, for this uh, calls to uh, seize the ties uh, between the two countries, which is something mm. that, again, it's uh, the king uh, decides on this matter. So this is uh, uh, not being translated into some uh, real action. Um, uh, however, you know, like, as I told you, you know, the cooperation is ongoing, first of all, in security. Uh, Israelis and Jordanians are working uh, together very well uh, on uh, stopping the uh, arms uh, and, uh, and uh, also drugs uh, getting from the Jordanian border to Israel and also to Palestinian territories. Uh, there is also, you know, this aspect of uh, water for electricity the Green-Blue Agreement. Uh, yeah. So already now, you know, even before it's implemented, uh, Jordan the Jordanians are getting uh, a significant uh, part of their water uh, from Israel. Uh, so there is uh, absolutely, you know, a convergence of uh, economic interest and security interests here. Uh, so I think that uh, both sides understand that uh, also uh, the royal court and also uh, the Netanyahu government, that they have to safeguard this relationship. And it's not to, to die, not the time to rock the boat with the Palestinian autonomy being so weak. Uh, and uh, yeah, I think that for now, again, you know, with these two men that know each other and don't like each other, King Abdallah and uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, this is as good as we can get. Fair enough. Um, and I mean, a, a similar question with regards to Israeli-Egyptian ties. And we saw the, uh, the recent incident of the Egyptian policeman infiltrating over the border and uh, shooting, killing three 
IDF soldiers. Again, how did that affect relations? And and what what would you say is kind of the status at the moment um, between uh, between the two countries' uh, uh, bilateral ties? No, you know, so I think that uh, it didn't change much uh, in the dynamics of relations that are overall positive uh, uh, for now. Uh, however, uh, in the security arrangements, uh, you will definitely see uh, a big change because uh, uh, Israel decided to reinforce uh, its uh, security uh, posts on the uh, a, a common border, Israeli-Egyptian border. And uh, it means that uh, there is, a, you know, a, a, a perhaps a belief <coughs> that similar incidents can take place in the future uh, because uh, we know that uh, uh, Basically, uh, you know, this kind of incidents uh, did, did uh, take place in some, you know, time, time before. It's not the first mm. time. And uh, what comes to mind, you know, it's the Suleiman Khatar's affair in 1985 at Rasburka, when an Egyptian soldier shot five Israelis to death. Uh, and uh, there were also many wounded. And, um, you know, he was, of course, uh, immediately... And this was, you know, very short time after the King David Accords. Uh, he was hailed as a hero. And also this guy right now is being hailed as a hero. Uh, and the Egyptian public, we know that I actually, you know, uh, researching it for my PhD, uh, the Egyptian public and the Egyptian media uh, was always uh, anti-Israeli and that served also the regime. Uh, they always knew to explain why we need to continue uh, these relations uh, with uh, Israel but also why these relations should not be uh, too warm. Uh, so uh, I think in this regard, nothing changed. Uh, we, like in Jordan, uh, there is a, a wider field for cooperation right now between Israel and Egypt, perhaps more than ever, at least since the eighties, uh, because you see also the uh, Israel being a part of the guest forum uh, uh, that meets in, uh, in Egypt and uh, we see increasing uh, energy deals, uh, and also even the trade that, that uh, used to be uh, historically very low and stood at about $300 million a year to $400 million a year between Israel and Egypt. Uh, it grew uh, to, I believe, half a billion uh, recently. Uh, so you have some improvements, uh, but not again, in the people to people, uh, uh, it's clear that uh, the situation is very bad uh, and uh, this gap is just growing. Uh, between the overall, uh, you know, uh, decent relations between the uh, leadership and uh, the professional uh, uh, elements uh, and uh, the this dichotomy between the an, an exception of the Kim David or even clinging to the BDS now, supporting the BDS uh, by the general public. So uh, just one point, and perhaps a, a positive uh, question to lead on. You mentioned about the cooperation within the field of energy and natural gas. Um, it was recently uh, revealed that uh, there's a, a new element of the deal to also involve the Palestinian Authority in the natural gas off the, uh, the shores of Gaza. Um, what can you tell us about the prospects of that, uh, of, of that deal? Well, yes, uh, you know, so uh, this is we're talking about the marine field uh, that uh, is uh, situated just in front of the shores of Gaza. Uh, and uh, it's uh, clear that, uh, you know, uh, we're talking about substantial uh, gas reserves that could, of course, serve, uh, you know, the Palestinians. Uh, it was important for the Americans. It was important uh, for the Egyptians uh, to prevent uh, further deterioration of the PA and the collapse, perhaps, of course. 
so Israel uh, reluctantly but agreed uh, to uh, uh, cooperate in this regard uh, to allow the Palestinians, uh, of course, to explore this field and uh, to take the gas out. Uh, some of the gas might be used for the immediate needs of the Palestinian autonomy, and the rest of it can be sold outside. So it can be sold outside. Uh, so Israel theoretically supports it. Uh, we uh, still need to see how this deal can be implemented, uh, given that uh, Hamas uh, is uh, a ruler in the Gaza Strip. Uh, it will not have uh, anything to do with the gas field. But uh, what will it do uh, if it will turn out that the Palestinian autonomy is the only beneficiary uh, from, uh, from this deal? How much gas, for example, Gaza will get? Uh, who will mm. be in charge of this? You know, so will it be the uh, Egyptians who broker who will broker it, uh, and so on? And again, also in case of uh, some hostilities between Israel and Gaza, uh, which, as we know, uh, happen every few months uh, now, uh, and we just recently had this flare up in with the Islamic Jihad. So it's not always even the Hamas uh, that is involved in these hostilities. Uh, so who will be able to safeguard? Uh, the operation in the marine uh, gas field. Uh, this, I think, this is the larger problem because we see that even in Lebanon, uh, despite that Israel gave its agreement already a few months uh, ago, uh, for now, uh, you know, there is still no probability that the gas will actually will uh, uh, be, uh, you know, uh, withdrawn from uh, from from there. Um, uh, and uh, a lot of it has to do with the lack of security. Uh, so uh, the Gaza Strip is the most volatile. Uh, part of the Middle East. Uh, so who will assure the gas companies uh, that it's a smart uh, investment of their money? Uh, so there are a lot of elements there. Uh, there is a positive step, uh, but still it needs, you know, for many people to take a lot of positive steps uh, for, it to, for it to really happen. Absolutely. Many people taking positive steps. Um, Ksenia, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. Fantastic uh, to hear your analysis. Thank you so much, Richard. I enjoyed it.